Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to Jeremiah 31 and read with me verse 11. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Well, congregation, as we've been working through Jeremiah's prophecy in the 31st chapter over a series of months, we have seen that the prophecies that are contained here are filled with much practical and important truth for the church today. For Jeremiah speaks not merely of his own time, where he was called to be a faithful preacher of God's truth, law, and gospel toward the nation of the Jews during their apostasy. But his prophecies reach much further than that, beyond the judgment that was to fall upon the kingdom and church, beyond the exile that was to follow in that land of Babylon, and even into the gospel era with the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the fullness of grace he would bestow unto his gospel church, its beginning and its completion in the world to come. Indeed, the truths contained here are such that we stand much to profit by. The word lives and abides forever, and as the people of God store up these truths in their soul, they may receive much comfort and instruction in their daily lives. But rightly dividing the word of truth can sometimes be challenging, where you do have not only the historical context of Jeremiah himself to deal with, but also the nature of the fulfillment of some of these things, where Sometimes it is disputed. Well, perhaps if we would care to look at the mere words that are found in verse 11, we would begin to get a clue as to what is being referred to. It speaks of the Lord having redeemed Jacob and ransomed him. And here are words that are often connected with the great liberty of the people of God from exile in Egypt. So, for example, in that uh, great um, deliverance of the people of God from the Egyptian forces as they pass through the Red Sea, Moses proclaims his praise to the Lord in Exodus 15, where he says, Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth thy people, which thou hast redeemed. So a redemption surely equal to or greater than that from the land of bondage and slavery in Egypt is spoken of here. We may also recognize that there is the reference to a powerful enemy in this verse. In the remainder of the verse, it says, not only the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him, but also particularly from the hand of him that was stronger than he. 
And so many have argued perhaps that the nature of this fulfillment is bound up simply with their deliverance from Babylon. Babylon, as it were, being another kind of bondage and slavery and uh, retribution for their sins against the Lord Jehovah. And so perhaps this is simply speaking of another exodus, another deliverance from that land of Babylon. But where we look at the broader context of this section of Isaiah of Jeremiah's prophecy, particularly in the earlier chapter, you see that there's many references to the nature of this deliverance, which simply do not correspond with what occurred when they were brought from Babylon after 70 years to um, the promised land once more. So, for example, in Jeremiah 30 and verses 8 and 9, we read the prophet with these words, For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. We see here that uh, this kind of deliverance that's being spoken of both in chapter 30 and 31 is one in which will not lead to another captivity, but it will be final. Strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. So this is deliverance that would not correspond to Babylon, for we know that after that bondage in Babylon, the the people of Israel were then led captive to Antiochus Epiphanes in the, the Greek Empire, and then later on into Rome, and ultimately were dispersed. But the greatest clue of all, of course, is that in that section which I read, it speaks of their being redeemed to serve the Lord God and David, their king. Now, children, it isn't the case that Jeremiah was saying that David was going to come back from the dead. No, it was speaking of the greater son of David, the Messiah, the one who would carry the promises of the covenant and kingdom in his person and bring about a perfect redemption. Indeed, where Jesus Christ came himself, he spoke of the greater bondage, which is not merely that, to a pagan empire, but that which finds its root and source in the king of darkness himself. He said in John 8, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. You see, the spiritual bondage of the devil and his kingdom of darkness is surely spoken of here. That greater deliverance, indeed the earlier verse speaking of the Lord as a shepherd, points particularly to the character of Christ himself and his message as Redeemer, and his mission of Redeemer, I should say.
Dr. Gill uh, confirms this interpretation where he says, Christ is the Redeemer that is mighty and has taken the prey out of his hands and has led captivity captive. And this he has done not only by, not only by power and conquest, spoiling Satan and his principalities and powers, but by paying a ransom price for these captives into the hands of God, in which is no other than his precious blood, his life, himself. And so must he, and so must he be a, a sufficient ransom for them. He goes on to say that if we would speak of a partial fulfillment here of that deliverance from Babylon, we speak of it only in a limited sense. He says this redemption was typified by the deliverance of the Jews out of the hands of the Chaldeans or Babylonians, a mighty nation and stronger than they, and is the ground, reason, and foundation of the restoration of that people in the latter day. So we see under, uh, in broad strokes, this is what is being spoken of here. Now there is the redemption of Christ, indeed, perhaps in a way begun when they are brought out of Babylon, but ultimately fulfilled in the times of the new covenant in which both Jews and Gentiles would receive the great redemption from the power of Satan. As we have sought to unfold something of the nature of this text, I want to now drill down and, and draw your attention to a number of practical teachings that we may derive from it this morning. The first is this, the faithfulness of God to his elect church. The faithfulness of God to his elect church. You notice, children, how the verse goes here. For God, or rather the Lord, hath redeemed Jacob. And in your Sunday school children, you know that you're going through the book of Genesis and you're learning about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the foundation of God's covenant and redemption goes all the way back even to those times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, real men who lived and received the same promises that, that we trust in today. And you notice that whereas uh, the church takes on the title of Israel very often, that name which Jacob received after he had wrestled with God there one dark morning as the Lord appeared to him and wrestled with him, he gave him that name Israel, which speaks of a prince who has power with God and man. In this verse, he uses the older name, Jacob, Jacob. And I'm sure that's not without significance. Maybe the Bible here is trying to get us to think back. How was it that Jacob first got his name? Well, it goes back, of course, to his birth, doesn't it? And in Genesis 26, you read about his birth. It begins in verse 19. They're speaking of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And how it was that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And like many of the women under the Old Testament, 
She wanted to have a baby, but could not. She could not have a child. And so it was that Isaac entreated or prayed for his wife. We read in verse 21, and the Lord gave a baby, a conception to this Rebecca. But the strange thing is there was not only one, but two children. Maybe that wasn't all that strange. That happens occasionally where a woman has twins. But the strange thing was that they were actually fighting. Two children fighting inside their mother. Children, you can uh, imagine, I'm sure it's difficult for you to understand, children fighting together in their home. But how about this? Even in the womb, children fighting inside their mother. This was a strange thing indeed. It says in verse 22, the children struggled together with her. And she said, if it so be, why thus? Why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Why is this happening? Two children fighting inside the womb of their mother. And then in Genesis 26, verse 23, we have the answer. The Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You see, God knew what would fall out from these two children. The one we know was born uh, red, ruddy, and would be a, a hunter. The other would be more smooth, and one would be named uh, Esau, and the other would be named Jacob. And before anything else was, was done, before anything had fallen out in their lives, you have Jacob receiving his name, which means deceiver, deceiver. He was the younger, you see. We read in verse 26 and after, uh, maybe I'll start reading in verse um, 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. They called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. Now, that name Jacob means deceiver, not the most flattering of names, but he would live out that name as one who was given to lying and deception and, and committed many sins in his life. And already, before anything had happened, God had set him apart for unique blessing. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans 9, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. God had singled out, you see, Jacob for blessing before he had been born, not in consideration to anything he would do or not do. Indeed, his life was filled with blemishes, filled with sins, and yet God had already chosen him, already elected him for the blessing he'd been called to. And you see in our text, Jeremiah 31, verse 11, 
This fits a, pa a pattern with many of the prophecies where especially the undeserved grace in election towards his people is being highlighted, God will use this name Jacob to remind his people of their humble and unworthy beginnings, of God's freedom and sovereignty in choosing them for the blessing and redemption which he has in store. Malachi, the first chapter and verse 2 is another example that I would lay up beside our text. God says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And of course, the Apostle Paul quotes that passage in Romans, the ninth chapter, where he speaks of how Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We are confronted here with this as the source and root of the redemption which we cherish in Jesus Christ, God's freedom in electing his church. Our confessions speak about this in great detail. If you would actually want to know what we believe about it and understand how we derive this from Scripture, how we defend it as true, as good, as a holy doctrine, you would turn, of course, to the, count, the canons of Dort in the back of your Psalter, and you would read how this doctrine of election is not only explained and confirmed from Scripture, but also defended as most just, reasonable, and right. Let me quote from the first head of doctrine in those canons of Dort in the uh, eighth article. There are not various decrees of election, but one in the same decree, respecting all those who shall be saved, both of the Old and New Testament, since the scripture declares the good pleasure, purpose, and counsel of the divine will to be one, according to which he has chosen us from eternity, both to grace and glory, to salvation and the way of salvation, which he has ordained that we should walk therein. You see, it flows not only from the plain teaching of the word of God, as we have seen, but also through the very character of God. And it is necessitated by a right understanding of the God we serve, worship, and adore. In the first head of Doctrine, Article 11, it says, As God himself is most wise, unchangeable, omniscient, and omnipotent, so the election made by him can neither be interrupted nor changed, recalled or annulled, neither can the elect be cast away nor their number diminished. This is the source of our salvation. God loving Jacob, God choosing his church, that the number appointed to eternal life could never be diminished, for he knows before the foundation of the world according to his most wise, powerful, and holy decree, those who will be heirs of the promise. It also, in that 
same uh, confession, the Canons of Dort, lays out all the errors, all the confusion that we would respond to and say, this is a corruption of the truth. For example, in the denial of error six, following the first head of doctrine, the Reformed Church especially refutes those who teach that not every election unto salvation is unchangeable. We say that's wrong. It is unchangeable. But they teach that some of the elect, any, that some of the elect, any decree of God notwithstanding, can yet perish and do indeed perish. What do we say about that? Well, we say that by which gross error they make God to be changeable and destroy the comfort which the godly obtain out of the firmness of their election and contradict the Holy Scripture, which teaches that the elect cannot be led astray, that Christ does not lose those whom the Father gave him, and that God has also glorified those whom he foreordained, called, and justified. Many helpful scripture references there if you wish to consult them. Well, this is the one doctrine that we may derive from this scripture, and that is the election of God uh, concerning his church, his faithfulness to his elect church. And I would say that there's a number of abuses of this doctrine that we must confront. One would be this, the denying of this doctrine, the denying of this doctrine. So plainly is this taught in the scripture that we are confronted uh, with those who would yet deny it and say that is not fair. That is not fair. How is it? That God, you see, could pass over some and choose others to salvation. Why, without any regard unto their works, could he say, Jacob, have I loved? And Esau, have I hated? Well, in one way we may answer with the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. When that exact objection comes up, he says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you, and who do you think that you are? This is ultimately the nature of pride, you see, where human beings would raise themselves up on all two hind feet, look at the face of their almighty, all-powerful creator and say, that just doesn't add up. Who are you, O man, that answers back to God? You see, we may go further and say, you are not only a creature and, and no place to drag God off of his glorious throne of sovereignty. No, you are a sinner. You are a transgressor, a lawbreaker. Can we say that God is unjust to deal with sinners in the way in which they have plunged themselves, sinning with a high hand against his holy law and commandments? That's a true saying, that if God did not choose some, heaven would have none. And that would be most just and right in its place. For you see, God does not owe salvation to you or me or anyone. It's not. It's not about what we deserve. It's not about what is fair. If it's what's fair, we're all going to go to hell. That's what would be fair. Because we all deserve hell. What is 
revealed in the gospel is indeed most just, but in one way it is not fair because it is a one-sided display of mercy, God choosing some unto everlasting life. And so it is that we are sorry to say that one of the marks of unregeneracy and unconversion, someone who hates God and hates his word, is that they seek to argue with this doctrine of election. They will not let God be God. They, as man, seeks to answer back to God. And I would plead with you, if that is in your heart this morning, see it for what it is, as a wicked and a heinous sin, as something which is inexcusable as well as irrational. It is no place among any of us. Another, of course, wrong use of this doctrine would be twisting it, twisting it. And this may be done by those who are perhaps raised within the bonds of the church here of election and then simply conclude that they must be elect no matter how wicked or ungodly they live. They have no love for their neighbor. They have no reverence for the Lord. They do not tremble at his word. They do not turn from their sin. They do not believe the words of Christ nor trust in him as their savior. And so it is that they rend and twist this doctrine to their own destruction. Jesus' own words here to those under the enslaving power of the devil are very fitting. He says, Abraham, sorry, if Abraham were, excuse me, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Quite to the contrary, they claimed to be the true sons of Abraham. But rather, they did not the works of Abraham, thereby revealing that they were not the true sons of promise. They were not among the true elect church. And so it is that as long as you remain in your sin, as long as you remain in unbelief, no comfort can be derived from this doctrine. None whatsoever. Of course, hearing how much this exalts in the sovereign good pleasure of God, hearing how it can be abused by others into complacency, you may have another temptation, and that is to ignore this doctrine, to ignore it, simply put it out of mind, give it no mind, not consider it. Well, this is also most unbiblical. It's unbiblical. The exhortation of the apostle in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, is examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Indeed, it is the calling of everyone to make their election sure. That is, to be firmly persuaded on good and warranted grounds that they are among the elect of God not by seeking to pry into the hidden mysteries of God's eternal counsels, but by responding to the plain teaching of the scripture and in the holy gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving him as savior, turning from sin, depending upon him, and thereby receiving that wonderful comfort and joy, recognizing that this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and if a gift of God, then
then it is unrevocable that the will of his electing decree will stand. As we've seen, there is this that is set forth in this passage, the faithfulness of God to his elect church. Let me, in the second place, speak of God's invincible power. God's invincible power. We see in verse 11, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. So you have, as it were, this strong, oppressive enemy, the devil, and his power to deceive, to destroy, to murder the souls of those whom he has under their sway, such that all people, as they are born more naturally, come into this world under that oppressive power. And none can liberate themselves. None is strong enough or wise enough to be free from his terrible power of deception. And yet there is one strong and mighty to save, even the Lord God Almighty, even Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah, our righteousness, the shepherd who is spoken of in verse 10, a shepherd of the flock. He is the one who with his mighty hand and outstretched arm by his glorious work of salvation, coming and living a perfect life, suffering under the agonies of hell on the cross, rising again from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high, works out the perfect salvation for his people and applies it unto his people. In Luke chapter 11, verse 21, the Lord Jesus himself speaks of this and speaks of this contest between himself and the strong man of the devil. He says when, in Luke 11, verse 21, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Devil here is reckoned to be this strong man who has all these possessions in his fortress, in his palace. And until one stronger than him would invade that fortress, then he cannot be overcome. He cannot have his goods spoiled. And Jesus says that he himself is that stronger than the devil. He is the one who can bring you out of captivity in Satan's kingdom unto the glorious liberty of the sons of God. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle speaks of this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, and through death he might, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death, death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is ultimately 
the state of those who are not yet converted. They are under the bondage to sin, under the fear of death, under the enslaving power of the devil. It was for this reason that Jesus Christ came. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many, that many would be redeemed from the hand of the devil, that they having a just payment for their sins before the bar of heaven, may go free. That freedom of knowing God as your God, of knowing heaven lies as your heritage, of knowing that there is no condemnation that rests upon you. So that is the heart of this, surely, but we can also speak about it as broader than that. And I think where you would consult the other references in Jeremiah's prophecy, particularly chapter 30 and 31, it's pretty clear that this captivity is not only to the devil, but also speaks of the afflictions and the sorrows which accompany the devil's reign in this world, particularly through the enemies of the gospel that are the devil's children. Consider Jeremiah 30, verse 16. Therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity, and they that spoil thee shall be a spoil, and all that prey upon thee will I give for a prey. There is this vengeance which will be visited upon all the enemies of Christ and his church. Is it not very similar to what was spoken to our forefather Abraham, where it was said of him, I will bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. In Matthew Henry's commentary about this passage, he says, Zion's deliverance will be brought about by the destruction of her oppressors and thus her enemies will be recompensed for all the injury they have done her. For there is a God that judges in the earth, a God to whom vengeance belongs. We see the church persecuted in distant lands of China and Muslim countries where they persecute and hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the increasing lawlessness, wickedness, and hatred of Christ, even in our own society, dividing families, dividing communities, dividing even so-called churches. As the seed of the woman, the true elect church, is oppressed by the devil and his servants. We think of Jesus Christ himself crying out to Paul when he was an oppressor of the church before his conversion. Saul, Saul, why persecutest me? It is the persecution of Christ himself for wherever his people are. There is he in the midst of them. And so we may take from this text, dear brothers and sisters, that God will avenge his elect, that God will vindicate his honor, that the purposes of election may stand. John Calvin, who was often beset by discouragements in his own ministry in Geneva, speaks concerning this verse. This truth is of no little use to us at this day, which is to say it's of great use, is what he's saying. For when we consider how great is the strength of our enemies, despair must 
overwhelm our minds. But this promise comes to our aid. God testifies that he will in such a way be the deliverer of his people, that the power of men shall not prevent nor delay his work. Sometimes discouragement can beset the Christian, and there can be all sorts of ways in which you can be brought to that place of discouragement. If, indeed, you are unconverted and dead in your sins, then perhaps you can coast through life on flowery beds of ease because you see the devil will leave you alone and there will be no oppressive oppressive attacks of the evil one upon you. But for the true child of God, this life is a warfare. It is a struggle. It is something that we must know in the continual fight of faith. Children, I'm sure you've heard of that man, Elijah, the great prophet of God. And maybe you know how the Lord used him on that great Mount Carmel in order to vindicate God as the true God and to show that he was God and not Baal. For they laid out those two altars. You remember, children, Elijah said, let the God who answers by fire be the God of Israel. And so all the prophets of Baal, they lined up, they tried to uh, call upon their God. They cut themselves. They howled like wild animals. Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no answer from heaven. But Elijah, the prophet of God, he lays that altar upon the mountain with the 12 stones representing the tribe of Israel. At the time of the evening sacrifice, he cries out unto the God of heaven. And he says, O Lord, hear me, vindicate your servant. And though it was drenched with 12 barrels of water, the fire comes down from heaven, incinerates the burnt offering, incinerates that altar. So it was that the enemies were slain. All the prophets of Baal were slaughtered there on the mountain, testifying of the victory of the Lord over the false prophets. But we sometimes forget that right after such a glorious victory, what do we see but Elijah beset by discouragement? There he is. He's heard that in uh, 1 Kings 19 that the wicked king Jezebel has it out for him. And so he is left in utter desperation and fear. He who was once a victor of the Lord on Mount Carmel is now sitting there under the juniper tree, depressed and feeling, as he says in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no, not better than any of my fathers. Well, what does the Lord do? He, he sends an angel to bring him food and water. He rests, and then he takes him on a journey 40 days to Mount uh, Horeb, Mount Sinai, where the Lord had revealed himself to Moses before him. And he takes him there into a cave and he asks him that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand 
upon the mountain before the Lord. And, and as he stands there, there's this mighty rushing wind that begins to actually break apart the rocks of the mountain in pieces. But the Lord is not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then there is a great fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. No, the Lord appears in a still, small voice where he asks simply again, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers again, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The word of the Lord comes back to him, and he says, Yet have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all the, the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every kiss which hath not kissed them. He says that there is a church, a true elect church, which has been preserved from the corruptions and apostasy of that evil age. Just as our canons of Dort say in Head 2, Article 9, the purpose proceeding from everlasting love toward the elect has from the beginning of the world to this day been powerfully accomplished and will thenceforward still continue to be accomplished, notwithstanding all the ineffectual opposition of the gates of hell, so that the elect in due time may be gathered together into one, and there never may be wanting a church composed of believers, the foundation of which is laid in the blood of Christ, which may steadfastly love and faithfully serve him, as their savior, who as a bridegroom for their bride, laid down his life for them upon the cross, and which may celebrate his praises here and through all eternity. Does it give you encouragement this day, Christian? You may find that you are beset by all sorts of challenges, difficulties. I do not know your soul. I do not know what burdens lay upon you this morning. But I tell you this, that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, that his decree of election will stand. There will be a true church. There will be a heaven that awaits for them. This is the only solid comfort. This is the only sure cause of rejoicing this morning. If you are found in Christ Jesus today, then nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In the section right before the book of comfort, which we've been reading, Jeremiah did give a word that was expressly to the exiles in Babylon. He wrote Jeremiah 29 as a very practical letter for them. As they were living in days of oppressive tyranny and lawlessness and spiritual darkness, it was important that their love and faith would not be diminished. And so we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an unexpected end. Sorry, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. 
and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. If we find ourselves discouraged this day, then let us seek the face of the Lord. He alone in his covenant mercies and his eternal, never-failing love is the one we may turn to this morning. In the midst of discouragement and darkness, let us remember that the Lord has redeemed his church and people, that his promises will never fail, and in him we shall find the victory. Amen.